Hello and welcome to this discussion with Dr. David Thunder. Dr. David Thunder is a political philosopher from the University of Pablona in Spain, and he has authored a book called Citizenship and the Pursuit of the Worthy Life, published from Cambridge University Press, edited a collection of essays titled The Ethics of Citizenship in the 21st Century, published by Springer, and uh, he's a very outspoken critic of various bad practices nowadays. Now, I must say, uh, Dr. Thunder, I came across your work some uh, about a month ago when I was uh, researching about the new anti-free speech bill that is being pushed forward in Ireland. And uh, I must say that uh, I got very much interested really in how someone who is an, simultaneously an academic and talks about issues because this is not very, very frequent. Usually we are used to academics who are being a bit vocal uh, later on in, uh, in life, let's say when they're just about to exit Agatinia, or and an, a major, a, a really sea of silent people. So that got me interested, and especially I was really happy to see that you are talking about citizenship, and I'm, I'm frankly, I want to find more about, uh, about your work. Sure, yeah, it's, it's great to be here, and I'm delighted to be on, it's a privilege. Um, and uh, I mean, I'll just begin by saying that the reason why I have been so outspoken about issues, uh, a number of issues, including free speech um, and potential attacks, let's say, or threats to free speech, is that uh, all of my academic work is driven by a passion for freedom and for civil freedom, for freedom in, 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 in the political sphere, but also in the personal sphere, and even freedom, interior freedom within the soul. Yeah. Um, so every level of freedom fascinates me. And, um, and, and so for me, it was a very natural thing for someone who studies freedom to then speak out when freedom comes under attack. Yes, this uh, is a really slippery term the term freedom and it seems to me that it has assumed a sort of uh, as it has assumed a sort of symbol in most people's minds especially after the cold during and after the cold war but it is very insufficiently understood and it seems Correct. to me that especially when we have a notion like that that has become a symbol many people have really weird connections to it and they frankly don't see many of the threats to it do you think that this yes. is an accurate uh, thing to say? Yeah, I mean, I think the idea of freedom is similar to the idea of equality. It, it, it can mean different things to different people. It can be given uh, very ideological interpretations that uh, perhaps serve certain political interests. Um, so, for example, some people interpret equality as meaning that we should all have the same income level. Um, and I think that's a very problematic interpretation of equality uh, because it makes it pretty much uh, requires a totalitarian type of state to enforce that kind of ideal. Um, but regarding uh, freedom, uh, I think um, I think it's important to distinguish between uh, license, liberty and license to begin yeah. with. And John Locke, for example, um, you know, one of the founders of modern liberalism, one of the founding fathers of liberalism, um, was very clear that ordered liberty or, you know, what he called liberty was quite different from 
what you call license, yes. which is just doing whatever you want. Um, doing whatever you want without the constraint of law, without the constraint of rationality is license. And license leads to anarchy and license leads to destruction. So uh, that's not what I certainly understand by freedom. I understand freedom to be ordered liberty. Um, and that means freedom on the inside at the beginning, which means an order within the soul, um, which means that rationality or reason has some kind of controlling function with respect to our passions. Um, and, and then on the outside, I understand freedom to mean two things. One is the ability to construct um, your social world along with your peers in cooperation with your peers in a rational manner, in a way that is coherent and responds to worthwhile ends. Um, and the other is the immunity from domination, the freedom from being dominated and th or threatened by outside actors, whether right. it be the state or a private actor. Um, so freedom is a complex concept and it has negative dimensions such as freedom from domination, but it also has positive dimensions such as the ability to construct uh, a social world that, you know, that is inhabitable, habitable, and that is, um, let's say, enriching for human beings. Excellent. So the thing is, um, we have symposium number two where Bo and I are talking about the various traditions of uh, the notions of liberty. And we're talking about the, the positive, the negative, and the Republican tradition. By all means, uh, if anyone is interested, ch check that out. Now, I want to ask you something about this. So I think that basically each tradition on its own is insufficient for uh, maintaining a stable order. So, for instance, it seems to me that if we just focus on, on negative liberty, we are basically ending up with societies like the societies that we are uh, living in today. Um, we, we can flesh this point out in, in, in a bit. It seems to me that also the, the tradition of positive liberty that understands liberty as something like rational self-mastery can be distorted as well. And also the notion of liberty as non-domination in the Republican sense seems to me to be nice on paper, but I really don't know how and whether there is a coherent plan in creating a society where basically there is, there is such a kind of freedom, or at least a very significant degree of it. Do you think that the Republican notion of freedom is a bit utopian, or do you think that to some extent, extent it can work? I really hope it can yeah. work. Because I really like that tradition, but I would be really interested to hear what you have to say about it. Well, there are two strands to the Republican tradition. One is what we might call the neo-Roman Republican tradition um, of, say, Skinner and Pettis, um, which focuses a lot on the idea of freedom as non-domination or not being mastered by another, not being in a master-slave relationship. Um, and... That's one, one dimension which I find useful um, for thinking about certain aspects of freedom, um, particularly the vulnerability to uh, predatory behavior by uh, powerful actors. Um, so it's important that those vulnerabilities be reduced by things like rule of law um, and by you know, punishments, suitable punishments for, uh, for you know, predators. Um, but there's another Republican tradition, which is 
what you might call a more positive civic Republican, neo Aristotelian Republican tradition. Um, and uh, I suppose uh, I would think of that tradition as emphasizing the fact that emphasizing the, the, the value of freedom as self-mastery, as you said, rational self-mastery. And this, the, on this view, uh, to be uh, a good citizen and to have a functional civic life actually means uh, to govern one's own life and the life of one's community in accordance with reason um, and or with rational criteria. Okay. And uh, and through rational deliberation, right now, that value for the neo-Roman republicans like Pettus, they instrumentalize that kind of positive freedom as as self-mastery and self-government, and they say, well, we really just need self-governing communities in order to protect yes. freedom as non-domination. And I don't buy this because I think that positive freedom, the ability to shape our community life. Um, and indeed to shape my own life, I think is a very uh, precious type of freedom and a freedom that we have good reason to value. And I certainly would not say that it's purely an instrumental value. I think it has intrinsic value. Okay. Um, so these two, two strands of republicanism should actually be able to come together. And I believe the way Pettit frames uh, freedom as non-domination, it doesn't really work because for him non-domination is sort of like the axiomat the, the rock bottom value of republicanism like it's the central principle but if we if we back away from that extreme position and just consider non-domination as one of the principles of republican republicanism or of a free society then 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 surely um in fact i would say positive freedom is more fundamental than negative freedom that okay. would be my argument it's more fundamental because ultimately, if I have negative freedom, if I'm not being dominated by others, but I'm not pursuing worthwhile ends or achieving something that is intrinsically valuable, then my life is a failure. Uh, two questions. Do you Are you working on a theory where you are giving such an argument? Is there something like a new book that you are preparing or something? Yes, exactly. So I am actually um, preparing a book in the in the final stages of preparation, um, which is called The Polycentric Republic, A Theory of Civil Order for a Free and Diverse Society. And this book on the Polycentric Republic actually does draw on elements of the Republican tradition, in particular, the idea of the importance of rational self-government and the importance that communities be able to govern their own lives. Um, and not just the political community, but actually even non-political communities or civil society communities. Um, so this this book takes a much more positive um, approach to freedom than, say, the neo-Roman Pettit Skinner approach, um, because because I the value that I put consider to be the pillar of a free society is what I call the freedom to flourish. Okay. Um, so the, the freedom to flourish basically is the ability to pursue um, human flourishing uh, in a way that is responsive to my own uh, rational, rationally informed and uncoerced choices. 
Okay. Uh, right. So basically, the idea is that freedom separated from flourishing is pretty much worthless. If there's okay. no flourishing, then freedom is sort of uh, doesn't really enrich a human life. Okay. Right. So that's why I put I put uh, f- uh, flourishing at the center of my account. Um, and then basically, just very quickly, basically the idea of this book is that we need to give a lot more leeway to local communities to structure their own life and govern their own lives. Um, and that means that the normative order of the state has to be a lot more uh, minimalist, a lot less interventionist than it actually is at the moment. Okay. Now, one, another question, the second question I was thinking about was, has to do with the distinction between liberty and libertinism. Because it seems to me that nowadays there is an argument that increasingly more paternalistic governments are making, that they, they are portraying liberty as sort of identical to libertinism. And it seems to me that there is such a thing, such a tendency in, the, in Western societies for governments to become a bit more paternalistic and the, or maternalistic, however you, you want to call it. And there is this idea that government officials want to pose as knowing best than people and they sort of fetishize emotions. They cre- say that emotions are really pivotal for flourishing and that they need to respect people's emotions. And they are, it seems to me that they're pushing forward really aggressive legislation in the name of protecting people. And I would like us to move to the Irish anti-free speech bill, uh, which I believe is called Criminal Justice Act 2023, but correct me if I'm wrong. 2022. Oh, 2022, okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. And uh, it seems to me that when when I was reading bits from it, it seemed to me as if, you know, they're portraying Ireland as a sort of society filled with hate and... I just, I don't, I don't understand. This seems to me to be way over the top. And just, just I'll read from the first page from this bill. It says, this bill is supposed to be an amendment to the law relating to the prohibition of incitement to violence or hatred against a person or a group of persons on account of certain characteristics, referred to as protected characteristics of the person or the group of persons, and to provide for an offense of condoning, denying, or grossly trivializing genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity, and crimes against peace, peace, and etc. So there are many problems with this bill, and it seems to me that it it goes it's very extreme even for a hate speech bill because most hate speech bills are focusing on the distribution of hateful content which in itself can be understood as a, a really weird notion but here we're not just focusing on the distribution we're fo- foc- we are told that even the possession of hateful content or the preparation of hateful content is something that should be prosecuted. Um, what, you have spoken a lot about it. Uh, do you want to give me uh, just your view on how important and how dangerous this bill is? Yes, I'd like to clarify that this bill is actually an update of existing legislation from 1989 called the Incitement to Hatred Act. Yeah. And that act actually contains many of the problematic features of this current bill. 
So just to clarify, one of the features it includes is that that inciting hateful uh, feelings uh, towards certain groups with your speech, um, you know, is considered to be a crime. Um, so, I mean, uh, so that in itself is rather problematic uh, already, uh, because the idea that I am criminally responsible for the feelings of my listeners, for what feelings might arise in their hearts as they listen to my speech, just is patently absurd. As, as yeah. uh, the idea that you could possibly criminalize uh, speech because it incites incites uh, feelings, negative feelings in other people. Um, I mean, I don't know where to start even with that, but let's just say that a public sphere that is vibrant must involve controversy. Citizens will obviously disagree and they'll disagree strongly on controversial issues. And they, you know, passions will rise. People will become, um, you know, nervous and, and head up about issues. That's what happens when you have an open public sphere and when you have actual argument. Um, in and a so dynamic when you do that, society, I may add. Yes, in a free and dynamic society, people will express themselves openly. And when they do so, they will say things that upset other people because we don't agree on, there's a lot of stuff we don't agree on. So, uh, so the idea that, you know, someone might interpret something that I say, uh, take it the wrong way or be upset by it and thereby form a, form a hateful feeling towards one of these 10 or eight or 10 protected groups. And therefore I could go to jail. Yeah. That to me is, is, uh, something out of 1984. It's, it's something that's absolutely not. It's totalitarian, to, basically, because no one can, hmm. no, no one can have any control over that because there are infinite interpretations of any claim. So, if we are talking about the possibility of reading and interpreting something as being hateful content, as meriting not speaking, then no one would speak. And this is yes. This may already yeah. be to concede too much because th there is. This is something that we may be, this is an argument that we could be putting forward gr by, even if we assume that there can be such a thing as hateful content, which, okay, of course, I, th I think that some, in some cases there can be hatred and there can be such a thing as incitement to violence. There are problem with, uh, as you say, incitements to hatred, but it seems to me that it's problematic even if we grant this assumption for the sake of debating. Because anyone, yes, you mean the assumption, the, yeah, the assumption that there is hateful uh, speech out there. Yes, yes, yeah, absolutely. But there are there's there's deceitful speech. There's there's annoying speech. There's anger inciting speech. There's uh, excited speech. There's there are all sorts of speech out. Speech, there's lots of speech out there that's bad that we don't like, yeah. that is harmful for society. But we don't shut down speech because we think it could upset people or it could be politically incorrect um, or that it could potentially be hateful. Um, I mean, the, the real issue here is that it's not with the moral ideal of hate of non-hateful speech. I mean, I, I share this ideal, you know, that we should not be, um, you know, uh, pigeonholing people uh, being expressing, you know, uh, ignorant prejudices towards people, putting them in in these boxes and, um, you know, denigrating them because they belong to this race or this religion. 
or whatever. Uh, that's all lamentable that that, that that happens. But lots of lamentable things happen in society. But we don't make everything that's bad illegal. Um, yeah. And there's a reason for that. And it's because um, there are certain kinds of offense that if you try to criminalize them, you will end up, uh, let's say, uh, making the law extremely ambiguous and very difficult to understand. Yeah. So the idea of a hateful of a hateful speech, for example, there's a distinction in this in this law between incitement to hatred and reasonable contributions to public discourse, which is a very nebulous concept. Because on its own, we could say, yeah, okay. There is such a thing as reasonableness. There is such a thing as contribution to public discourse. But the question is, who judges what constitutes a reasonable contribution to public discourse? And I may say that the more time goes by, the less optimistic I am that bureauc the bureaucrats charged, char uh, no, <laughs> entrusted with, uh, with the power to make such uh, judgments that they can actually make them well. That may yes. be a bit pe too pessimistic on my on my side, but on my behalf. But what what do you think about this? Well, it goes back to something you said earlier that um, uh, hate speech laws are highly paternalistic. Yeah. Because what they do is they set up a kind of thought police, um, yes. which would be the state or the representatives of the state or the agencies of the state, including police officers who have to make judgments about whether to arrest somebody. Um, prosecutors who have to make the same, you know, the judgment about whether to prosecute. Um, and really the issue here is that um, why would we assume that people, just because they're state officials, will have um, better judgments about the, what counts as hateful speech versus reasonable contributions to discourse? Yeah. Um, Basically, people who are public officials are just like you and me. They're actually, often they're even worse than ordinary citizens. So, um, you know, in terms of their motivations, uh, they have a lot of access to power very often. And power, as the old adage goes, uh, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Uh, you know, to, to have that power at your disposal, it starts to go to your head And you can very easily start to kind of set yourself up as a kind of um, an expert, or, yeah. as a superman, as as someone who can stand above the masses and look down on them and tell them how they should live their lives and instruct them on what kinds of discourse are acceptable and unacceptable. Um, and I think people who approve hate speech laws and disinformation laws um, I think that they are extremely, either they are politically calculating that the people who enforce those are on their side, yeah. so they'll help them out, uh, which could be one possibility, right? The cynical interpretation. Or they're just hopelessly naive, and they think that people in power are philosopher kings who have this superior God's eye perspective on reality and who can make much better decisions than ordinary people um, and can sit up on moralistic high thrones and look down on the people and, and point out who has deviated from their social norms, which now, by the way, are no longer social norms, but legal norms. Yeah. 
because really it's a codification of ideology of, of, of a kind of moral ideology um, about, you know, appropriate and inappropriate types of speech and attitude. Um, and it really intrudes into the internal sphere of thought and um, the private sphere of the home because this this particular bill, in fact, goes even further than other hate speech laws because what it does is it criminalizes the mere possession of yeah. content that that would be deemed likely to incite hatred in society. Um, the mere possession. So uh, police could get a warrant to come into your home, search your home, force you to give your password to open up all your electronic devices, seize your devices and arrest you because you had a text sitting on your computer that they thought could incite no, technically, it's would likely incite hatred. Yeah. Which it doesn't even have groups. to be actual. It doesn't have to have incited violence. They say that no. it is likely to incite. And they, they, exactly. say they don't even run the test. No need to run the test. And they preemptively shut it down. And one question here, because this seems to me to be a very totalitarian thing, uh, aspect Absolutely. of this bill, because... Of course, every time we talk about legislation, legislation is, is you know, one side, one, one thing. There is also the question of law enforcement. That is another thing. So the question is, if, let's say, you know, people legislate something like that, how can they enforce such a law without actually getting the warrants that you just, just mentioned? So it seems to me to be, to, to be a malicious way into pacifying the population into accepting such a thing into accepting mm. that it is something that of course the 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 means for which practices like that are are being enacted are the good mean are good are good the, the ends yeah. for and this seems yeah. to me to be what is the end the end is protecting the su the subjective feelings of not every, not every, uh, or not everyone from the population, hmm. uh, but from some protected groups. So for me, that would be wrong in both sides. I would not like a government to to say that I want to respect the feelings of people, and they give a, um, get, they put forward a an interpretation of what constitutes respect for the feeling of people. I, I would think that that was. That's a recipe for disaster. But here there's an extra step because it's not, I, <clears throat> I think it's, it's not just the people in general, it's some protected groups who have the groups who possess protected characteristics. And I was reading it, for instance, it says here, uh, some protected characteristics are race, color, nationality, religion, national or ethnic origin, descent, gender, sex characteristics, sexual orientation or disability. And in gender, it says, gender means the gender of a person or the gender which a person expresses as the person's preferred gender or with which the person identifies and includes transgender and a gender other than those of male and female, etc. So it seems to me that this bill is just created to stop debating and stop brainstorming in civil society. Yes, I, I think that's right. I mean, I think you can imagine a number of scenarios in which somebody could be prosecuted 
Um, it's impossible to say in advance who will be prosecuted because the, the categories are so nebulous, the category of hate, hate speech, that um, it will depend on what the judge decides, right? And they're given yeah. whatever judge you get on, which is Monday, it'll be Judge Samuel, and if it's Tuesday, it'll be Judge Freeman or whatever. And you'll have no idea what they're actually going to decide really in advance because it'll depend on these very arbitrary, subjective judgment calls. But one could easily imagine a scenario in which, for example, um, supposing I'm supposing someone is writing an article that is very critical of transgender operations for children, right? And they make references to the trans movement as being irresponsible, um, you know, uh, for advocating those kinds of operations, or at least the parts of the trans movement that, that advocate that. And then, you know, uh, some people from the trans movement make a complaint to the public prosecutor and they say that um, that somebody I shared my article with before publishing it, say I shared it with, with a colleague and that colleague then brought it to the attention of the public prosecutor and said, I think he might publish this. In fact, he, he, it looks like he intends to publish this. I've read it. It looks very incendiary because it basically um, is very critical of, uh, you know, um, the practice of transgender operations or, you know, trans uh, hormone therapy for children. And he suggests that trans people, uh, or at least that some parts of the trans movement are, are, are child abusers. Yeah. Um, and he could say, you know, this is going to attract hatred towards our community. Because if the community thinks that some of us are abusing children, then it would be natural for them to feel hateful towards us and they might generalize towards the whole community. Yeah. And he could make that kind of argument. Now, would a judge accept that argument and issue a warrant to search my, my get access to my property and my, my computer? It's your guess is as good as mine. Honestly, we, we don't know. Um, I mean, I, mean I, I give the example also of myself. I'm, I'm, I'm Catholic. You know, I, I should be one of the protected categories because religion is a protected category. So if somebody decided to go after Catholics and say that we're backward and we don't really deserve to be, you know, in the public sphere, we should just go back to our, say, our rosaries or something. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I don't, I don't, don't like that kind of speech and I disagree profoundly with it, but I would not be comfortable with a society in which the state could prosecute that person and jail them yeah. because they criticize their way of life. Um, I mean, if they could come after, if they could come after them, they can come after other people in society and, and they could shut down speech and it will become politicized eventually because it's so arbitrary and it's so subjective that it just invites ideological and political manipulation. Yeah. So one last question about the bill. Uh, it seems to me that it's completely unpopular. How is it that we have come to this? Uh, I've heard something like uh, 80 or 90% of the people are against it. Is, is that, are these numbers accurate? I'm not, I'm not familiar with an opinion poll, an official opinion poll or recent poll that shows uh, 80 or 90% against it. But I know that the submissions 
I, I know there have been polls done in which there was quite a while ago, um, in which there was a majority against this legislation. Yeah. Um, and I also know that the submissions uh, from the public consultation, over 70% of the submissions were critical of the bill, uh, were against the bill. Okay. So there is no public demand for this bill in terms of, say, a surge of popular demand for the bill. It's clearly coming out of the political establishment. It's coming out of the, the elite political circles. And, you know, I think a lot of people speculate that probably this bill is driven by NGO activity yes. and lobbying. That's the most likely explanation because it just seems to come a little bit out of the blue without really any public demand for it and against, indeed, against popular opinion. Um, so this means that, as I said, there's probably people pulling levers behind closed doors, probably a lot of lobby activity going on. Okay. So there is a question here because I want to link this to the question of citizenship. Because for me, there is a very worrying tendency that uh, is being playing on for years. I want to share with you a small conjecture I have about it, and I really want to hear what you think, what you think about it. So for me, the thing is that the Western world has generated a kind of abundance, material abundance, and this frequently, especially after the, the early 90s, this breeds a kind of mentality that of conceit, that there are basically no problems that Western societies can have. We are, the Western societies are so uh, high and mighty that they basically have solved all the problems. As I think Francis Fukuyama was saying in a sometimes misunderstood claim that, you know, the liberal constitutional democracy has been the end of history and that there will be no other system after that. So for me, it seems to me that after the, the early 90s, there has been a sort of underestimation of problems such as multiculturalism and, and uh, things like uh, mass immigration. And, and there is also an issue with cosmopolitanism, I would say, but that's, that's a third, uh, that, that's eventually down the line. But the, for me, the thing is that this wealth in this social context made created a, a, a really large class of people, uh, I would say it's the overwhelming majority of people, who stopped being concerned citizens and they minded their own business. So this kind of, this lack of engagement, this lack of political culture, let's say, uh, created an imbalance of power where it was very easy for people the NGOs, maybe you mentioned, uh, governmental officials, to basically take advantage of people not paying attention. And basically that's how we wake, woke up right now in a world that has nothing to do with the world that we used to live in five or 10 years ago. And it's been, it seems to me that the key word here is habit. Many people are habituated into thinking that there is nothing wrong. They're habituated into thinking, into not wanting to think that there are significant problems, which is why, for instance, very frequently, I'm trying to t tell people that, you know, there, there are some issues in society and they don't want to listen. Now, do you think that this has to do with a lack of active citizenship or do you think that this theory is completely wrong? Well, like a lot of theories, 
it's unlikely to be completely wrong. Usually theories have something interesting to contribute. So um, I would say, I would say that I find it interesting, this idea that wealth and affluence could induce complacency and perhaps um, a certain kind of disengagement from the public sphere. But frankly, I think that particular tendency, as they say, that horse left the stables a long time ago. Yeah. I mean, I think Tocqueville was already worried um, and he already saw Alexis de Tocqueville in the 19th century, um, the French philosopher, I'm sure everyone is familiar with him, but uh, he, 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 he was very worried that um, you know, acquisitiveness and the race to acquire property and to basically, um, you know, be more comfortable, that this could drive citizens further into the private sphere and kind of uh, make them less, take their focus off public affairs and put their focus more on the ego family and on their own material well-being and he already saw this in action in america in the 1850s 40s 50s um uh i'm sorry in the 1830s and 40s so he 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 was already quite um very conscious of the problem in the 19th century now uh so in that sense i don't think it's a completely new problem um, and I do think that there's a structural tendency built into the modern uh, post-industrialized state, um, which has become a kind of welfare state. Uh, there's a tendency built into it, built into it towards uh, the centralization of power yeah. and authority. Um, so the concentration of power in the federal government of the United States or in the national government of Europe or in the European Commission, um, these, these tendencies of kind of power to move upwards um, uh, mean that citizens are progressively more disempowered. Uh, that actually creates a cycle of, uh, of let's say, um, disillusionment with politics and, and disengagement. Yes. Because when citizens feel disempowered, they feel that their participation will be useless, will not really make much difference. Um, and that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy uh, because obviously if you think you won't make a difference, then you will stop voting or you will remove yourself from politics and you'll just devote yourself to things that you think you can make a difference in, such as making money yeah. um, and enjoying your family life and leisure, leisure activities. So uh, it's very difficult to diagnose exactly what's happened but if, if I had to point to a couple of uh, things that have contributed to this disengagement from politics by ordinary citizens, I would say one is the concentration and centralization of power, right? Which dis literally disempowers communities and citizens and the people. Um, that is one issue. And the other is individualization or the erosion of community, the fabric of community life, uh, where communities become kind of dislodged from their moorings and from their roots. And you get this kind of post-traditional society in which people um, are relatively more mobile and also conceive their life 
in a more kind of individualistic way. You know, I'll forge my own life and my own path forward. And I don't need any church or any moral authority to tell me how to live. Uh, and I think this, this leads to communities uh, breaking down over time and over generations. Um, and when communities break down, they have a lot less resources to resist at the bureaucratic state, yeah. the administrative state. So, um, you know, we just recently lived through uh, a pandemic. We lived through very drastic types of social interventions. And I believe that those interventions would have been less, would have had less uh, effect or less, they would have been less accepted if communities had been more vibrant and robust okay. and more well-organized. So uh, do because, you think that yeah. we were mm -hmm. met with a divided public and that the public would be less divided if it was structured in a more community-centered way? Yes, I mean, you could think of it this way. You could think of it as um, the Leviathan state, to use that Hobbesian term, the Leviathan state, uh, this, this sort of extremely powerful state, what can a single citizen do in the face of a Leviathan state? The single citizen is powerless before a Leviathan state. But when the single citizen unites with other citizens and creates a community or a movement, then they become visible yeah. um, in society and they have to be taken more seriously. And there's a force to be contended with. And so uh, actually a lot of the aspects of the pandemic, really what they did was they, they seemed almost designed to fra further fragment communities because social distancing literally was separating people into individual households. Yes. So there was really no way for them to, it was very difficult for them to coordinate or to form any kind of united front against the state. This is a form of divide and conquer in the social sphere that in order for the people in general to be to be controlled they can be controlled more if they can be divided and would you say that the effort to distort information and to distort debate has something to do with controlling population so for instance the bill we, we just discussed it is a form of restricting public discussion and public discussion is a way in which people they can form a collective subject in, in ways with a particular demands. So it seems to me that something like the bill we just uh, discussed is a way of saying that, no, you're not allowed to discuss some topics. You're not allowed to make yeah. demands that have yeah. to are, you could say, community-centered. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Aristotle says that we are unique among other, among all kind of creatures in that human beings have the capacity for language. And, and to it's understand language good and evil. Yeah. To understand good and evil and just and unjust. Yeah. And, and it's language that actually prepares us for, that equips us for political life. It, it's, it's what equips us to engage with other citizens and to form a shared horizon of meaning. Um, that's not Aristotle's, that's a modernized yeah. of Aristotle. Okay. A shared horizon of meaning and, and to be able to uh, communicate with each other and and form a bond with others yeah. and and so as, as as you say if you shut down the ability to communicate 
then you are literally shutting down politics itself. Yes. And, and you are actually uh, dis deactivating um, our political natures in some ways, or at least that you're suppressing our political nature and you're converting us into um, something like individual, uh, passive individuals who would be <coughs> recipients of welfare, yeah. recipients of welfare, yeah. subjects, sl slaves maybe, but if you don't want to go as far as slaves, let's say uh, subjects of the state um, who do not have agency to decide for themselves how to live. They're instructed by the state how to live because if you can't debate, if you can't contend, if you can't you know, push back verbally, in the public sphere, then you can't mobilize really, uh, obviously, right? This is yes. all totalitarian regimes know this. Yeah. And so every totalitarian regime, one of the first things they do is they try to control speech. Exactly. And the media and the dissemination of information. Exactly. Okay. So I want to ask you something a bit that is a bit more philosophical about citizenship, because I, I'm, I want to ask you, what do you think is the importance of citizenship for what we call the good life? Do you think that, for instance, it's an integral part? What is it about citizenship that makes it so important for our lives? Yes. Well, I think that there are two aspects to this, to this question. Um, one is that citizenship could have an instrumental value, right? So uh, that's actually more of the kind of neo-roman kind of philopetid approach and there and actually i think there's a lot of truth to that that engaging as a citizen is a way of it's a defensive maneuver that can limit the damages that the state can do to my community yes um and at mcintyre i would say roughly goes takes that kind of line so you know um I can't afford to ignore such a powerful actor as the state or even my municipal, my local municipal government. I can't afford to ignore them um, because they could do quite a lot of harm, you know, if they're not checked. Yes. And, and so maybe they're not, you know, angels, maybe they're not, well, obviously not angels or saints. And there's certainly, they may not even be competent, very competent, but at least I can maybe limit some of their damages uh, that okay. they do to the commun community life. So that's one, that's the instrumental approach because, you know, after all, living a good life surely is taking responsibility for uh, warding off threats to this, the, the quality of my life and the life of my community um, and the, our ability to actually live up to an ideal that's coherent to educate our children and, you know, in, in an ideal that we believe in and that we and, and that can help them grow as human persons. So that would be one aspect. The other aspect <clears throat> is the question of whether citizenship actually involves directly, let's just say intrinsically valuable virtues okay. and intrinsically valuable character traits, uh, let's say, or virtues. Uh, and, whether or not it directly enriches a human life or makes makes our life uh, fuller, more complete, uh, participating in political life. And on that question, um, I'm a bit ambivalent because I, I, I think um, 
I think that politics at the level of the state, the modern state, uh, the value of engaging in that kind of politics is more of an instrumental value. Okay. Um, I think, but I think in order to acquire those, uh, like let's say the, the benefits of that engagement, engagement, I do have to develop human virtues yeah. Um, such as, you know, resilience or fortitude, um, you know, prudence uh, in my interventions in the public sphere, uh, courage in the face of adversity. There, there are a lot of magnanimity in the sense of trying to achieve worthwhile projects uh, and sacrifice for those projects. Um, you know, I think there can be really valuable character traits developed through our political engagement. Okay. Um, but the, the, the form of political life that is most enriching and that I would say is, can really complete human life and not feel as alienating as engaging with the state, state politics is pr probably something like being a citizen in a local community in which I'm able to help make decisions within that community. Yes. You know, that to me is a more uh, a richer and more coherent form of citizenship. And, uh, and in my ideal, the, the ideal I put forward in, in my, in the book that I'm, I'm working on now is essentially that the majority of civic life occurs at the local level. Okay. So, um, would you say that if we buy into the idea that the majority of the, of civic life occurs on the local level, we are, moving back to a more bottom-up conception of society instead of a top-down conception of society where everything is basically going to be planned by the bureaucrats in the, in the latter case. I'm saying, are we moving away from that? If we see that society is mostly a, a spontaneous order and, it's, and we are using the state in order to mitigate some of the conflicts that arise in such a concept, as opposed to viewing the state as basically something that is going to create a plan for and to impose on the whole of society. Do you think that it's it moves towards the former? Yes, I think I think that um, basically, I think bottom up is a way of describing this. Yeah. Um, and and I think that on my these local communities, what they do is um, they, they're not completely self-sufficient. Uh, so they're not like the, the Aristotelian polis because they're not okay. completely self-sufficient. They're actually interdependent and they're also dependent on a market, uh, you know, a market economy that yes. actually transcends the limits, the boundaries of those small communities. Yes. So, uh, this means that they have no choice if they want to achieve their own flourishing. They have no choice but to cooperate with other communities and also to uh, engage with or use coordinating mechanisms that will help them to achieve their, their goods and services. And, um, and so, you know, or even to defend, them, you know, even in terms of policing or military defense. Uh, all of this can happen uh, by delegating authority uh, to representatives uh, who can represent their interests in assemblies or in councils that, that, that in a way coordinate the life of a larger society. 
Um, but of course, this process of control and delegation, uh, as I conceive it at least, is is a bottom-up process. Yes. So it's very different to the modern state in most cases, uh, in which there's a national plebiscite, uh, in which a majority of the national plebiscite, or you know, will determine who, you know, who who governs. Um, I I firmly believe in the idea that. Like the Swiss cantons, um, Swiss confederation. Um, I think basically the idea that there's, they have one of their, um, one of their houses or one of their uh, chambers of the parliament is basically a kind of, uh, has like uh, representatives from all of the cantons. And, um, and they have, as, as far as I know, they have, I don't know if they have exactly equal representation, but they have roughly equal representation, okay. the cantons, right? So this is, or even in the United States, the Senate gives gives uh, equal representation to uh, the, the different states, right? Um, these are ways to recognize the standing, the equal standing of communities in the whole theme. Uh, and they're a way to uh, sort of push back against the majoritarian tendencies of of, of modern democracy. Okay. And so I, yeah. I would be in favor of giving those senatorial chambers a much more dominant role in politics, giving them more power so that uh, local communities have more of a check on cent central power. Excellent. So you think that in a way we should move towards decentralization in in order to offset the centralizing tendencies that uh, we are encountering nowadays. So is that, yes. is that accurate? Yeah. Yes, that's accurate. Okay. Now, I want us to move a bit to another discussion that has to do with the Rawlsian idea of a public reason. And the reason I'm asking is because it seems to me that the kind of paradigm that we are living in is, to a large extent, influenced by the thought of John Rawls. And, the, and many people, who, especially in academia, who are, uh, let's say, disciples or followers of Rawls or people who draw inspiration from him without necessarily uh, accepting everything he said, they do give some sort of arguments about the society we live in that frequently appeal to notions that Rawls makes. So the question is, th there are many questions, by the way, but I want to ask you what you think about the following. It seems to me that both in a theory of justice and in political liberalism, Rawls talks a, a lot about autonomy and he talks about autonomy in the context of the following of, of uh, self-respect. And it seems to me that after Rawls, there has been a, a very major tendency, or we could say that the tendency was already present, but it, it was rephrased in Rawlsian terms afterwards, of treating uh, self-respect, which is to, a, to a some extent a subjective notion, as being the basis of what uh, states should grant people. So mm -hmm. would you say that we are sort of encountering a concept, an attempt to conceptually engineer the conditions that are associated with self-respect. And many people who are in favor of centralization and more centralizing governments, they are appealing to the notion of autonomy 
conceived of as such in order to push forward the centralization agenda that they have. Because frequently they, they do appeal to an idea of self-respect and they do say that we want to restrict speech because hateful speech is harming people and harming people requires harming their self-respect. And it means that we are not granting autonomy, which is what the liberal state should do. Do you, do you think that there is, that this is sort of accurate, that Rawls has given a new fra phrasing to this, Total, not totalitarian, to the centralizing tendency? Well, there are a number of issues that you've raised there, so I'm going to try to take selectively. Yeah. So, sorry if I was a bit uh, bombastic. But no, no, yeah. no, it's fine. Um, I, I, I'll try to just take a few, yeah. few of the issues um, that you mentioned. Uh, centralization, Rawls, I'll start with the last issue of centralization. I think I would say that that... Uh, because Rawls, uh, the way he idealizes justice and the way he idealizes political order, the way he theorizes political order, it's from the perspective of a unitary state. And, um, and the units are basically the individuals and the state. Uh, and he does recognize the individuals have a background culture. But the, uh, the people who have standing to, uh, let's say, negotiate the terms of cooperation are fundamentally, are individuals yeah. for alls. Okay. And, and so I think that what I would call the jungle of social life, the jungle of associational life that makes up, you know, society just sort of falls out of the picture for alls. It's, it's really bizarre. It's like he just said it's the background culture. Um, but then when it comes to designing principles of justice, it's a kind of social contract between individuals who constitute a single state. Um, I mean, when you think about the implications of that, it basically means that local communities and sub-state associations have no independent standing in forming the social contract. Yeah. And um, it naturally uh, limits our imagination and, and, and pushes us to think of political order in terms of an order that's conferred by a unitary state. Uh, there's no discussion of federalism. There's no discussion of municipalism. There's really, it's just the state, right, that occurs. And I'm sure Rawls, if he was alive, you know, God rest his soul, if he was if he was alive, he would probably say, no, but I wasn't interested in the internal configuration of polities. I was just interested in idealizing, you know, developing a theory of justice. But I would say, actually, it is relevant because, um, because if your theory of justice is built for individuals as constituents of a unitary state, then you have fundamentally change the terms of the negotiation because the negotiation should actually between be between communities with different conceptions of justice yes um where they have to negotiate with each other so so it's an indirect way in which Rawls uh, pushes us towards the centralized state mainly by the way he sets up the social contract um which by the way is in my view is the way that other 
contractarians have set it up as well. I don't think it's just Rawls. I think this goes back to Hobbes and Locke and Rousseau even. Um, I think they do conceive the sole contract as a contract among individuals, fundamentally. Um, and, and then as far as public reason and whether that is influencing our current culture, our, our, our civic culture, I mean, Rawls and public reason specifically, I think we could say that there are important elements of Rawlsian public reason. It, it certainly seems to be mirrored in certain ideas that are current in our political culture. In particular, the idea that there's this shared set of principles yeah. that we can draw on. Rawls calls this the political culture. And um, he thinks there's a family of liberal conceptions of justice that we can just sort of be nourished by um, when we argue. And I mean, um, many people have criticized Rawls for this move. And I think this move will become more and more untenable. Uh, I think for a lot of people, it's a passe move that really it's not... An, it's not even like something should be, it's not even something that is almost worthy of serious debate okay. uh, because, because basically, but there are people who still buy this Rawlsian idea. But uh, if you look at, if you look at how society is actually the makeup of society, it's patently ridiculous to say that there's already a pre-existing set of conceptions of justice, liberal conceptions of justice that can provide an overlapping consensus yeah. for everybody to agree on. Um, uh, no, I don't think that exists. I, I think that I think that there, a more realistic approach is to say that there are probably certain procedural principles, like constitutional principles, that have broad consensus in society to do with how we make decisions and whether elections are valid. That consent, that, that might actually okay. count as a kind of an overlapping consensus. Because if that goes away, then we're in big trouble. Um, you know, because we need that. And so I think Rawls is way too ambitious in the amount of consensus he assumes in society. Um, and so uh, the reality is, that insofar as there is consensus, it's constructed through discourse and it's built up through discourse between people who disagree. And, and so there's this weird static idea of public reason in Rawls where you have these pre-existing principles and then discourse departs from these pre-existing principles. Whereas for me, discourse is this messy thing yeah. where you know we agree on some things, maybe particularly the idea that, for example, I don't kill the people that I'm arguing with, or I don't use violence to impose my opinion in general. Uh, and that might be enough to get a conversation off the ground. But that's certainly not having a shared conception of justice. Okay. So one thing to also to say for our audience, um, for so Rawls seems to me, especially in public, in political liberalism and published in 1993, he seems to me to be accepting a kind of what he calls a kind of reasonable pluralism, which seems to be the idea that he accepts that he is in a society or he is talking about a society where people are going to have 
different views of the good life, which he counts as reasonable. And his idea of the overlapping consensus seems to be a sort of idea where he says that, well, the only way to achieve a kind of coexistence is if every person, despite the fact that they have a comprehensive view of the good life, thinks in terms of public reason. And public reason is that, let's say, um, pool of reasons that are common to all these views of the good life. No, all, to, to, all many, to people who embrace different views of the good life. But they accept that they cannot push forward the entirety of their view of the good life. Would you say that this is a way of thinking about it? Well, that's that's Rawls's position. Yes, okay. I mean that basically that's his position that it's Question about letting in the reasonable here. people. Mm -hmm. Question here, which is also building on something you said before about communities. It seems to me that in the Rawlsian idea of public reason, concern about community seems to be a. I don't understand if it is within public reason in Rawls. So if Rawls thinks of society just as a, an aggregate of individuals who in behind the veil of ignorance try to legislate the, let's say, laws of the, of the basic structure of society, there seems to me to be an insufficient appreciation of community. And the question comes here, what if people in a modern Western society start thinking that community is a value and community is not just being with some people together in a geographical region. To be a member of a community is to have a sort of a, a common way of life that sometimes can ha has much more in common than people in, uh, let's say, multicultural societies have. And it seems to me that a, from a Rawlsian perspective, that would be sort of outside public reason, that, that we would not be allowed to think of of it as being a value, because it would be unreasonable. It would uh, be seen as sort of inciting hatred against other communities. Uh, do you think I'm putting forward a completely far-fetched view here, or do you think that there's something there? Well, I think that Rawls, as I, as I suggested earlier, in the way he sets up the social contract, yeah. he um, doesn't give any clear standing to associations, groups, or communities within the state, under the jurisdiction of the state to actually have standing to negotiate the terms of the social contract, the terms of the terms of cooperation. Uh, the, 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 so I think in that way, um, his thinking about justice and his thinking about the constitution of the state is fundamentally individualistic. And therefore, it makes sense that he would neglect the role of communities in the constitution of the state. Um, and I think that's definitely, definitely true. Now, regarding public reason, whether or not communities are relevant to public reason, what relevance they have, I think Rawls would, would, would say that... Um, First of all, he'd say that the restrictions of public reason apply specifically to what he calls constitutional essentials. The debate of the basic structure of society, right, which is given by the state. And again, we have the statist, statism here in the background. The basic structure of society is given by the state. And, and we're 
if we're debating that, then the rules of public reason apply um, because that structure is coercive, because it restricts people's plans of life, life plans, and so on. Um, so, so, so public reason basically is is to apply to the basic structure of society, and therefore, and it, and and it's true that comprehensive doctrines um, they can have a presence in public reason, but for Rawls, they have to endorse some form of overlapping consensus or some form of shared principles. Okay. And um, I mean, one could argue something like this. One could argue that, okay, you don't have to be a Mormon to understand the value of being in a Mormon community, you know, because it's actually the value of community life is a universal value. And therefore, you know, I can, you can sympathize with a Mormon because you just understand that being in a community, I just picked that example at random of nothing gets more, I have good Mormon friends, um, that, you know, you can actually sympathize with, with, with a Mormon because you understand the value of that, that, that good being in a community. And so public reason could, you could, you could bring to public reason, you could say, okay, look, we, we need to protect community communities. We need to al allow them to have a certain amount of autonomy to be able to direct their affairs. This is an important part of a flourishing life. You could make that argument within the bounds of public reason, right? You could still make that argument. The problem is that these diverse communities actually disagree on fundamentals about how to constitute the public sphere, yeah. what counts as a crime, what counts as human life, what counts as marriage, et cetera, et cetera. And there's no way to debate those issues from within public reason. Um, I mean, because there isn't an overlapping consensus on those issues. So it's a failed, it's a failed project in that okay. regard. Okay. So I think uh, we should um, fo focus on the last bit of our discussion and move back a bit to citizenship. And I want to... Uh, to say the following, there se it seems to me that many people are progressively losing faith to the idea of citizenship, and they they th they constantly everyone individually wants to have a voice, but they become a bit more pessimistic with the voice of other people. So, okay, you could say that there is a kind of uh, problematic tendency there, but I would like to ask you if you want to say something to people who would think this way and say if you think that citizenship is something that is doomed to become less and less and less active or whether there is any reason for being optimistic that people can be a bit more optimistic more concerned more of concerned citizens and more active citizens yeah um there are two aspects of this this problem one aspect is a cultural aspect which i think you touched on earlier which has to do with character yeah. and the development of character and social conventions and self-understanding and how we situate ourselves in the world how we think of our life and our relationships and you could say that individualist an individualist mentality where i'm my own captain of my own ship so to speak and I'm going to, you know, forge my own path and uh, my own career, um, my own professional life, my own family life. 
and I don't need to worry about other people and I could just leave everything over to professional politicians. Um, so that's, that's a kind of an ethical attitude. I would say, um, you know, it's, it's an attitude of character. Um, and it's, it's a type of, uh, let's say indifference to the public sphere and to politics. And that is a cultural problem. So I think that has to be worked through education, through kind of helping people understand that your engagement in the political sphere matters. Um, it matters for the future of your community, right? Yeah. People need to understand that. And that, that's, and, and that might take a crisis sometimes for people to understand that. But anyway, um, you know, so that's one aspect. The other aspect is the institutional aspect and that is that until there is more devolved power, if until power isn't more devolved to communities, I believe that uh, there are just hard limits to how much you can have an engaged citizenship or citizenry. Yeah. Um, people have busy lives. They have family, they have work, they have, you know, social life. They have a lot of things going on. And if they don't see the value added of their contribution, if they don't see that it's going to have an impact on their quality of life and the life of their neighborhoods and communities, then of course they'll be de they won't be motivated to participate. And um, and and also there, you know, the fact is that the institutions as they stand make the citizens' participation very much an uphill battle. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, if taxes are decided at the national level, I mean, if the vast majority of my taxes go to uh, the national government, then I have almost no say over tax policy. There's no way for me to change. It's very difficult unless I'm a journalist or unless I am a leader of a political party or maybe I stand in parliament. I have, I have negligible influence over the tax regime of my country. Yeah. So, so those issues, and that's just one example, but also the regulation of industry, the regulation of, um, of speech, uh, insofar as there is regulated or of media, all of these things are highly centralized in many, many countries. And this, this basically is saying to ordinary citizens, your voice doesn't matter yeah. because we're not interested in what you really have to say. It's better, in fact, that you have no influence because that way the national political elites get to call the shots. Okay, that's a, that, and, and whether or not they think that or they say it, it doesn't matter that the, the net effect of the institutional centralization that we have is that citizens at the local level, citizens living their ordinary lives have unfortunately very little influence Time. over national policy. Yeah. And, and that means over the policies that are applied to their lives. And, and, you know, in Spain, for example, um, a social, the, the socialist government recently, what they did was they passed a new education reform law that removed the ability of private schools that have any kind of public funding to decide whether to have uh, girls and boys or just boys or just girls um, in school. Um, and it also removed the ability of those schools to compete for students in order to expand uh, based on social demand. 
which was the previous model that the schools, private schools could expand with, with the help of public support. If there was public demand, you know, if people wanted to send their kids to those schools, that's a progressive model in a good sense, because it allows, you know, uh, supply and demand of the market to work. Yeah. Whereas they wanted to shut down the educational market by saying, you cannot expand, uh, your uh, enrollment will not reflect social demand, and we'll make it difficult for students to access you unless they live in the local area. Okay. Uh, so a whole lot of things that they did that basically were decided by the national parliament for the whole country. And that's completely disempowering. Final question. Do you think there is any reason for optimism that uh, people will be a bit more uh, represented in the kinds of societies that we live in? That their voice will matter a bit more? And if not, how could that change? If, if you want to end with hmm. that note. Yes, yes, sure. Um, it's a tough question. Uh, I, I think there are some signs, um, there are some indications that if people are pushed hard enough by their governments, that they will wake up to what's going on and that they will be mobilized. They will actually be motivated to push back and to uh, mobilize. And um, and so even if the institutions themselves are inherently limited, um, the political institutions, I would say that the regional elections in the Netherlands are proof that non-establishment parties uh, that really come out of nowhere and that have almost no history I mean, I mean, the the farmer citizen movement didn't even exist before 2019, and it now has it's the largest party in the in the Dutch Senate, um, along with uh, I think liberals and socialists. Like there's a kind of a block that also has 15. I think it's 15 seats each. Um, the point is that these people came out of nowhere, and the Dutch government. Uh, put in place plans to expropriate Dutch farmers um, in the name of environmentalism uh, against their will, uh, coercively expropriate them, basically. And uh, obviously with compensation, but that's not the point, that they were taking away their property in the name of promoting environmental, some environmental goal uh, to do with reducing pollution or something. Uh, now, uh, This, I think, really galvanized the citizen farmer movement and also it broadened its base of support because it swept, uh, it, it basically won the elections across almost all the regions. Um, and uh, I mean, that's at, still at the Senate level, but the, the, the leader of the party herself was just flabbergasted. She couldn't believe their success. So uh, what can we learn from that? We can learn that if there is a serious crisis or if the government overplays its hand and becomes too tyrannical or too oppressive, then you can wake up the sleeping giant and people can, in fact, form, uh, they can mobilize successfully. And, and so I want to say that that's, that, that would be a very positive note to, and realistic note to end on. Excellent. And thank you very much for it.
And it was a really nice uh, comment to end with. And uh, I hope you enjoyed our discussion a lot and uh, see you next time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.